Good morning, Fellowship family. It is such an honor and a privilege to be worshiping with you this morning, whether you're here in person or you're joining us on our live stream. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Jimmy Cook. I'm the elementary worship leader here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and uh, it's just an honor and a privilege to be worshiping with you. Uh, this morning, I don't know if, if, if you feel this, but I, I've felt it over the last few weeks that there's, there's chaos and there's disorder and there's violence. We don't have to look very hard in the news to see the tragedy. There's the, the things that happened in Uvalde, Texas, and there's war in Ukraine. And just on, on Wednesday, there is another act of violence in Tulsa. And it seems like things are out of control and they're chaotic. Maybe you feel afraid or anxious. Uh, maybe there's chaos in your, your personal life. Maybe things are not the way that you want them to be with your health. Or maybe things are not the way that you want them to be in your relationships. There's something broken and out of order and, and it feels like it's out of control. And uh, I wanna invite you this morning just to take a deep breath. If you're feeling the chaos, you're feeling afraid and you're feeling anxious, to take a deep breath. And I want us to listen to the words of the psalmist who reminds us there is one who is in control so that you don't have to be in control. Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. This next section talks about the flood waters and for the Hebrew people, the flood would have symbolized devastation, and chaos, and destruction. So the floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. But God is mightier, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Our God is in control. So you can stand, if you're able, and sing this with us.
been working in the pre-K center for three years now. And we serve with the pre-K ministry. Yeah, we've been uh, with it for about three years altogether now. Wanted to get plugged in since we were utilizing the, the kids' services. It's been a blessing um, for the last five years. And we've been serving in the early childhood and preschool area for two years. We started serving because we saw just the big need. Kind of a family affair. We all are kind of involved and we wanted to give back to our church that gave us so much. It's just a great way to be involved in our church. And, and I feel like service is an act of worship. And this is so much more than just dropping your kids off while um, the adults go to service. This is a place where the children are building their foundation built in Christ. I think my favorite part about serving in the kids' ministry is every time we read a new story, like they get really excited. It's almost like an encouraging, you know, to hear those stories kind of with fresh ears. And going to church with like children just like kind of changes the way that you worship, I think. And we get to learn so much with those Bible stories for kids, but it's actually for any age, actually. Just being able to see those light bulb moments as we're sharing the story. Just seeing how much they change and how much they grow up, how much they learn. Just the relationships you make with other teachers as well is really fun. You get to meet new people and... Um, you know, serving is one of the best ways to meet other people that you're serving alongside. If you're really looking to go deeper in community, we definitely recommend uh, serving for that reason. See people from different seasons of life, whether you're a young professional or a young married, empty nester, or just different seasons of life. We would love to have people in those seasons come and volunteer with us. I would say many hands makes the load light too. You don't have to have a certain set of skills in order to volunteer, really just people who can come and love on these kids. And we have incredible leaders that have been serving for years that will walk alongside you. Step outside your comfort zone because I think when you do that, you're rewarded even more. And I wouldn't have really ever considered myself like a kid person as far as like being a teacher. And I am able to help with the children's ministry, but I'm not with kids straight time and I'm working with the leaders. The curriculum is easy to follow. One of the biggest things for us is as coordinators, just seeing kids turned away because we don't have enough volunteers. Um, you know, it's hard to see and hard to grasp whenever we see so many people who could do that in the church. You know, some of these messages are messages that are going to be taken with them their entire lives. And so you really have a good opportunity to impact them for, um, for forever. It's just a great opportunity to walk alongside these kids and be a part of their story from the very beginning. Fellowship. My name is Tad. I get to serve here with the Fellowship Student Ministries, or FSM. Uh, and, and I'd like to say on that, uh, if you serve with early childhood, Fayette kids, would you just raise your hand really quick? Out here, a lot of people are probably over there serving now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for serving our church in that way. That's such a necessary way that we can serve our church family is over there. I know that I'm benefiting from it right now with, with our child who's getting uh, plugged into early childhood, Holden, and, and his teachers helping him feel welcome on Sundays where he's just not screaming his head off is such a gift to me as a dad. And so thank you for those of you who serve. And I would say this, if you're looking for a place to serve and maybe you're thinking, I don't know what my gifting is, I don't know what I could offer to other people, start somewhere and see what that could turn into. And maybe by serving with, with young children could turn into you realizing you have a passion for discipleship. Start serving somewhere. I remember whenever I was a student in our church, I started serving in the tech booth. And then one day I got asked, would you help with this small group? And it made me realize I have a passion for making disciples. 
And so start somewhere, even if it's not uh, something you already know that you're gifted at, you're gonna discover your giftings as you serve. And so that's my pitch. Uh, please uh, uh, consider serving with early childhood somewhere at our church. Um, hey, I wanted to give a couple updates uh, from the student ministry, just some ministry highlights that have been going on. A few weeks ago, we got to end our spring semester with celebration, where we gather all the cell groups together, and we just celebrate what has God done in and through the lives of students this last year. And I had a leader uh, grab me afterwards and say, hey, I wanna share with you something that um, two guys in my group said. He, he leads an eighth grade cell group. He said, one of the guys shared with the group, uh, until this year, I just viewed Jesus as like my safety net uh, for the afterlife. But through cell group this year, I've realized that Jesus wants my whole life. And I was like, that is amazing. Uh, it's an eighth grader realizing who Jesus is and seeing him clearly. He said another guy in his group shared, uh, until this year, I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And I don't know if you remember the awkward years of being in junior high and high school, but didn't it make a huge difference if you had a group of people that you felt like you could be yourself in, you could bring your questions? And that made me so excited to hear that that's happening through cell groups as we're growing as a ministry and, and seeing students find a place where they can behold Jesus and see him clearly for who he is, belong together with an authentic community, and then ultimately become disciples and discover where they're gifted, where they can make a difference in the world for the kingdom of God. And so well, we're so thankful uh, for all of you who contribute to our student ministry, uh, all of our cell group leaders, those of you who host cell groups in your homes throughout the week, and, and also many of you who have just given generously over the last year, multiple times, just in this last ministry year, I would have community groups ask, can we help support a kid to go to a retreat this weekend? Or coming and helping serve by cooking a meal for our senior uh, send-off night. Uh, parents who have been saying, hey, I wanna help cover the cost of my, my students' friends so they can come to this camp or mission trip with us. You guys, as a congregation, helped contribute thousands of dollars last year for our service project where we partnered with Samaritan Community Center. And so we could not do student ministry at Fellowship without you and without this church and your generosity. And so we wanted to share a way that you could give to that a little more easily. We've opened up a student activity fund that you can access through our webpage, fsmfayetteville.org. Um, and if you just wanna give to that, knowing that all of that, all of those donations are specifically going to be geared towards helping lower cost of camps and retreats uh, or giving scholarships to students so that they can be a part of some of the things that we do as a ministry that help them behold Jesus, belong together, and become disciples. But Thank you so much for this, this last year because we could not have done the things that we had and, and experienced some of those life change stories without your generosity and your care and your belief in our student ministry. So on behalf of myself, my team, our students, thank you, fellowship. I wanted to share just a few things that we're gonna be doing over the summer. If you're a seventh through 12th grade student in here or if you have uh, family members or friends that are students seventh through 12th grade this summer, uh, we're gonna be doing a few hangouts Every other Wednesday night, we're starting this Wednesday night. We're gonna be at Goalie Park, playing a lot of park games, just hanging out. We wanna meet you. Uh, we've got our upcoming seventh graders joining FSM this Sunday morning, and so uh, a chance for them to get to know some of the other students. We'd love to hang out with you. We've got a couple others planned throughout the, the year. We're gonna be at Arcadia for a game night. We're gonna do a movie night in the student center, but we just wanna spend time getting to know each other throughout the summer. We also have a, a discipleship program that's gonna be starting in July. Uh, students, if you'd be interested in learning just how do we more confidently study the Bible, how do we more confidently talk about Jesus with our friends, uh, we would love for you to get involved with that. And you can follow along with some of the things that we're doing through our Instagram, at FSM Fayetteville, where we're gonna be sending out some updates on that. And so, uh, again, fellowship, thank you so much for the way that you believe in our students uh, and help us disciple them and lead them towards Jesus.
Um, as we spend more time in worship and then look at the word today, I'd love to pray for us and just ask God's spirit to be present with us and to help us hear from him. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you uh, that you love us. And Lord, as, as we've considered even just how our church can, can better love and support uh, the children and students as part of our family, uh, where we remember that you view us as your children and that you love us, you care about us. You want us to feel a sense of belonging in your people uh, and you've adopted us into your family. And you've given us purpose as we become your disciples, be a part of what you're doing in the world to bring about your peace and your goodness and your blessing to the ends of the earth. And so would we find a lot of rest in that today as we look to you uh, through these songs, through time in your word, we're grateful. And would you fill our hearts with gratitude and help us to have a clear picture of who Jesus is this morning. In your name we pray, amen. This next song is a new song. So I just invite you to read the words, reflect on them. It's based on Psalm 42. In that Psalm, the psalmist expresses his confidence in God, but also his feelings of being overwhelmed. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. So as we sing this, if you wanna sing with us, you're welcome. But just reflect on the words. Make this an act of worship. As the deer pants for the wild, so my soul pants for you. All my tears have been my father day and night, my own. My soul, you feel forgotten. Put your hope in Christ alone. As the deep longs for the water, so my soul wants to be.
By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Thank you so much that you 
our Lord over the storm, that the chaos in our lives, the things that we can't control, that they're well within your hand and you're not surprised by any of them. So we look in your word this morning, teach us what it means to trust you in the middle of the storm. We ask in your name. Well, we all love to see amazing things, don't we? When I was a kid, there were TV shows dedicated to the concept. They had names like, that's incredible. Ripley's Believe It or Not. It was a whole hour of just amazing things. Now, granted, some things were more amazing than others. And even today, what do we watch? We pull up YouTube, we watch trick shots, we watch crazy things happen to people all over the world, or even our TV shows now. We watch home makeover shows, we watch cooking shows. We wanna see someone do something incredible. Like who doesn't wanna watch a chef make a world-class entree out of hot dogs, instant pudding, and a bag of craisins? I mean, it's crazy. And I think watching people do incredible things is one of the reasons so many of us love sports. Those moments that happen during a sporting event where someone does something almost superhuman. Some of us stayed up late last night to watch that happen. Those moments, they're frozen in our mind. Who could forget the 2016 Olympics? Usain Bolt was so much faster than these guys that he had time to look back at them and grin. These are the fastest runners in the world. I don't know if his 958 and 100 meters is ever gonna be broken. Or how about this guy? Let me try that again. How about this guy? Alex Honnold. Have y'all watched this documentary called Free Solo? I sat on the couch and watched him for two hours and at the end of it, I was exhausted. Y'all, this guy climbed a 3,000 foot sheer rock wall called El Capitan. For reference, that's two Sears towers on top of each other. Climbing experts called what he did unthinkable. He climbed that thing with no ropes and no safety gear by himself. It's incredible. But as incredible as these achievements are, there's one that stands out above them all. One athletic accomplishment that whether you were alive to actually witness it or not, it's probably burned in your mind. Let's just relive it together right now. For those of you who don't know, we call that simply the shot. Scotty Thurman, 1994, shot clock running down, seals our national championship win against Duke. We can never watch that too many times. But as amazing as all those things are, and they are amazing, none of them can compare with the story that Cassie read for us just a few minutes ago. Because only one time in human history has someone walked on the surface of the water, and that's what we're gonna take a closer look at this morning as we continue our series on the miracles in the book of John. Well, my name's Michael. I get to serve on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and Cassie, I really appreciate you being willing to read that for us. Those of you who don't know, Cassie Booth and her husband, Ben, 
They're longtime community group leaders. Ben leads a men's group. They were instrumental in helping Finley Robinson get Merge, our ministry for seriously dating and engaged couples started. So Cassie and Ben, thank you for your leadership and loving people well in the name of Jesus around here for a long time. Well, let's turn to the passage she read. It's in John chapter six. It's the same chapter that we were in last week. Last week, Brian Pope did an incredible job walking us through the first miracle in the chapter, the feeding of the 5,000. And as Brian pointed out, John is really focusing our attention here on who Jesus is. And we keep pointing to this week after week, but let's remember the purpose statement of the book of John. It's in John 20, 30, and 31. John says, Jesus did a lot of other things, but these miracles, these signs, they're recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, it means the Messiah, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So with that in mind, let's look at John chapter six. We're gonna pick it up in verse 16. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So we have some important details to set the scene here. First of all, it was evening. So the sun's going down. And they walked down to the sea and they, they got in a boat and they headed toward Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, anytime we study a passage in the Bible, we need to remind ourselves what comes immediately before and immediately after that passage. And what comes before this, we remember from last week. It's, it's verse 15. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. Now, this is an important transition verse because it tells us why Jesus wanted to leave the crowds. They were one to make him king. And I think it also explains why Jesus put the disciples in the boat and sent them off. One of the things Brian reminded us of last week is that there are four gospel accounts. Four different men, each inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote four accounts of the life of Jesus. And each one of those men had different things they emphasized, different themes they highlighted, and different details they either included or omitted. And this story from John 6, it actually has two parallel accounts, Mark and Matthew, both tell this same story, Mark in chapter six, Matthew chapter 14. And in those passages, there's this real sense of urgency as Jesus sends them away. Matthew says it this way, immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. That word that's translated made there, it's actually the word commanded. There's this sense that he's, he's pushing them into the boat, he's getting them out of there. And I think John 6, 15 tells us why. The last thing Jesus wanted was for these disciples to get caught up in this let's make him king moment. So here they are. They have to leave. And of course, the reason the crowd wanted to make him king was he's just fed them all. The feeding of the 5,000 has just happened. So Jesus has already done this incredible miracle. And the disciples have not only witnessed it, they've participated in it. They were the ones handing out the bread and the fish. And so now here I am imagining the disciples 
getting into the boat and thinking, we're gonna make this quick trip across this corner of this sea. It's really just a big lake. And they're thinking, this is gonna be an easy trip. We've made it hundreds of times. We're gonna get to a comfortable bed. We're gonna eat some leftover miracle bread. It's gonna be a nice evening. But as you heard in the passage, that's not what's gonna happen. Going back to John, verse 18, it says, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, when you think about the Sea of Galilee, it's in northern Israel, and it's only about 50 miles inland from the Mediterranean. So it's relatively close to a major body of water. And it's really low. It's down in the what we call the Jordan Rift. The Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level. In fact, it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And so weather can move in quickly off the Mediterranean and drop down into that valley in a hurry. If you've ever been out on your bass boat, when the weather starts to change, it can happen quick. A few years ago, my family was on vacation. We were at Virginia Beach, so that's on the Atlantic. And we could see some storm clouds out on the horizon, but we weren't too worried. And then everybody around us started packing up their stuff. And we're like, our hotel's only like 200 yards away. We'll, We'll stay out here a little bit longer. Well, what we didn't realize is, and what they all knew, in front of the clouds and and rain that you can see is the wind. And pretty soon, my family was getting absolutely sandblasted. I think we still have some beach gear, Lee, that's got sand from that day in it. And by the time we gathered up and sprinted that 200 yards to the hotel, that weather was there, and that rain was lashing that building. The weather can move fast on the water, and I think something like that is what happened to the disciples. They started off on what should have been an easy trip, and it turned into a grind. Again, the other gospels fill in some some detail here. Matthew says the boat was still a long way from the land, and he says it was beaten by the waves. And the word Matthew uses for beaten is usually translated tormented. This little boat is getting beat up. And remember, this is not a big ship. These fishing boats they used on the Sea of Galilee, they were about 25 feet long, seven or eight feet wide, about four feet deep. This little boat is getting tossed around on this wind and waves. And Matthew also tells us what time it was. He says, by now it was the fourth watch of the night, which is a Roman way of reckoning time that means it was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So let's think about this for a second. What time's evening? Well, let's conservatively say six o'clock. Let's say they got in the boat at six o'clock. It could have been earlier, but, and then let's go on the early side of the fourth watch. That's 3 a.m. Even conservatively speaking, that means they had been fighting the elements for nine hours. A trip that should have taken two hours max. They've been at it all night. So much for the comfy bed and the hot meal. Now they're out here in the middle of the lake fighting for their lives. And that's when the story takes this amazing turn. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. 
Okay, let's put ourselves in the moment with them if we can. Imagine you're a disciple. You've seen an amazing miracle. We've walked up and down all these people all afternoon passing out bread and fish. Then Jesus has handed us an empty basket and we've picked up broken pieces and leftovers that's filled the basket. Then Jesus has hurried us into the boat, sent us out onto the lake, and now we've been fighting this storm for nine hours. We're trying to make these last two miles and we just can't get there. And through the darkness, across the waves, with the wind blowing sideways, we see this figure moving toward us. I'm imagining the lightning flashing and illuminating the surface of the sea and we see something. Of course, we're gonna be scared. Now in Matthew and Mark, it says the disciples said, it's a ghost. And when we read that, we're like, a ghost? Come on, disciples. Have you ever seen your water hose and thought it was a snake? <laughs> of course. We've all had that moment where we jump back and then we're like, oh no, I actually put that there. I don't know why it scared me. And when you think about it, it would have been irrational for them to say, oh, that's probably Jesus walking on the water. These guys were exhausted. They were fearing for their lives. They're caught in terrible conditions. I think we should cut them a break. I think we would have been terrified too. But it's not a ghost. It's their leader, their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus. And he's not coming to them in another boat. He is walking on the surface of the water. Let's not let familiarity with this story rob us of the amazement. Everybody's familiar with the story. People who are non-believers use the phrase, walks on water, right? Usually we use it if we're thinking about somebody that we think is overly revered. Like maybe an SEC football coach at another school. And we would say, oh, those people down there think he walks on water. We're saying it sarcastically because he doesn't walk on water. Nobody walks on water. But Jesus did. Okay, put yourself back in the boat. The fatigue, the terror, the conditions, lightning flashes. You see it's the face of the man you've been following, your teacher, the miracle worker, and he's walking across the surface of the churning sea, and he says to you, it is I, do not be afraid. Now let's take just a moment and think about what the Bible actually says about fear. We've all heard, the Bible tells us over and over, don't be afraid. But the Bible doesn't tell us there's nothing to be afraid of. Actually, when we read the Bible, it's pretty clear there's a lot of things to be afraid of, including this storm that the disciples in. But the reason the Bible always tells us not to be afraid is because it gives us the antidote to that fear. Over and over, we're told, don't be afraid because the Lord is with you. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel are repeatedly told, don't be afraid. Yahweh, the creator God, the covenant-keeping God of Israel is with you. And now here's Jesus. 
walking on the surface of the raging sea to be with his men, and he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. What do you think he means in that moment? I think, first of all, he means, don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. It's me, your friend. But I think in a bigger sense, he means, you don't need to be afraid of this storm that's all around you because I'm here with you and my presence is enough. And when we look a little more closely at the Greek, we see something really interesting in the first part of this verse. It is I is a perfectly good and reasonable translation. But in the original Greek, it's ego me, which means simply, I am. Jesus walks out onto the water in Matthew, Mark, and John and says, I am. Remember the burning bush? Moses said to God, who should I say sent me? And God says, you tell them that I am has sent you. We usually transliterate that Hebrew I am into our English word, Yahweh. Jesus walks on the water through the storm and proclaims boldly, I am. Now you might be thinking, didn't we just do a seven week study on the I am statements in John? I don't remember this being one of those. And you're right, it's not considered one of those. But man, I sure feel like it's setting up the first one, which comes later in this same chapter when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And when we pull all of chapter six together, here's what we see. Just as Yahweh fed the children of Israel with miraculous bread from heaven when they were in the desert, Jesus feeds the crowd with miraculous bread in the desert place. Just as Yahweh splits the Red Sea so the Israelites can walk right through, Jesus shows his command over the waters by walking on the surface. And just as God told Moses, don't be afraid, the great I am is with you, Jesus walks out on the water and says, don't be afraid, I am. Man, I feel like in our Bibles, this is a great big flashing neon sign that John has given us that says, Jesus is Yahweh made flesh. He's saying things and doing things that only Yahweh, the God of Israel, can do. Which brings up a question. Why then did Jesus send them into this storm? As I mentioned earlier, Jesus put them in the boat. He commanded them to go out there. They were being obedient. Why did Jesus do it? Did he know the storm was coming? Yes, of course he did. So why did he put them in harm's way? Why did he put them in a situation where they would work for nine hours to the point of exhaustion? Why did he put them in a situation where they would be terrified and their life would be in danger? I think it was so he could reveal himself to them in a really powerful way. Oh, they had already seen Jesus do some amazing things. But it's clear from Scripture they were still struggling to understand who Jesus was. 
And Jesus knew they would never forget the moment where they saw him walking on the surface of the water and proclaiming to them, I am, so don't be afraid. And here's how the story ends in John. They were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I bet they were glad to see him. And then they were at their destination, just like that. What the disciples had struggled to do in their own power unsuccessfully for nine hours, Jesus accomplishes in a moment. Matthew adds that they worshiped him. They understood that he was more than a man, more than a prophet. They worshiped him as the son of God. And we see it in John as well. The next day, after this experience, Jesus looks at the disciples as others are abandoning him and says, do you wanna go too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we know and have believed that you are the Holy One of God. What brought Peter to that moment where he could make such a statement, such a confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? I think it was what happened the night before on that lake. And so let's make a couple of big observations about who Jesus is based on this passage. Number one, Jesus is God over the storm. In the Old Testament, the sea is often depicted as a place of danger and chaos. Think about Genesis 1. Before God forms anything, it says, darkness was over the face of the deep. It's a place of mystery and danger. And even today, if you go out in deep water and you kind of look down into it, it'll send a shiver up your spine. How far down does it go? What's under there? It seems dangerously unknowable. But throughout the Old Testament, God is depicted as one who's not only over the sea, he controls it. God doesn't fear the oceans. He's the master of them. Psalm 107 is a great example. Psalm 107 is full of things that only God can do. Only God can bring a lost people out of the desert. Only God can free a prisoner from their shackles. Only God can fill the bellies of the hungry. We've seen that in John chapter six, haven't we? And then look at verse 23. This is Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, all caps, it means Yahweh, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Then they cried to the Lord, to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Who is it that delivers people on the sea from their distress? The Lord, Yahweh. Who makes the storm be still? The Lord, Yahweh. Notice verse 30. They were glad and they reached their destination. Remember what verse 21 in John 6 said? They were glad to take him at the boat and immediately they were at their destination. Who's the God over the storm? Yahweh. 
who can walk on the water and rescue his men who are in distress and deliver them safely? Yahweh made flesh. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is God over the storm. It's incredible. But he's not just God over the storm. Look at it with me again. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. The disciples are in this terrifying storm. And where is Jesus? He's right there with them. In fact, it seems like he's walked three or four miles across the water to be with them so he can say to them, don't be afraid, I am, and my presence is enough. And so that's our second big observation. Jesus meets us in the storm. When there's chaos all around us, where's Jesus? He's right there with us in the storm. Jesus stepped out of heaven where there's no chaos and there's no storms and stepped into the chaos that is life on this fallen planet. And then the very last thing he says in the book of Matthew is, I will be with you always. And so we never have to wonder. We never need to ask, where is Jesus? He's with us. He will walk out onto the water in the middle of the storm and remind us, I am. Jesus is God over the storm, and Jesus meets us in the storm. And that's what's so unique and amazing about the incarnation, about who Jesus is. He's fully God, the creator, the sustainer of all things. He's sovereign. The wind and the waves obey him. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. Nothing surprises him. There's no storm he doesn't know coming, and there's no storm he fears because he's over them. But he's also the God-man. He's fully man. He's experienced everything we experience, yet without sin. He's the God who is over the storm and the God-man who's with us in the storm. And so to go back to what Jimmy was saying at the very beginning of the service, whatever storm you're facing, wherever there's chaos in your life, in your work, in your relationships, in your health, there's nothing there that surprises him because Jesus is God over the storm. Nothing overpowers him. Nothing's a mystery to him. He's above it. But he's also in it. He's in it with you. He's not some distant God who's unknowable. He's right there, and he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to reveal himself to you, even in the midst of the chaos, even when things are hard, even in the middle of a terrifying storm. He's there. He's with you. The great I am who split the water so his people could walk right through is the same God who walks beside you in the middle of the storm, He's over the storm, and he meets us in the storm, and his name is Jesus. Just stand with us as we sing. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's worthy of our praise. In the darkness we were waiting without hope. Without light 
What do we do in response to this incredible miracle? Well, the story ends in John 
with them gladly welcoming Jesus into the boat and immediately they're at their destination. That's our application. If you've never invited Jesus into the boat, if you've never said to him, my way's not working, Jesus, I need the forgiveness and grace you offer. I wanna follow you. It's as simple as just asking. And maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but like the disciples, you've been battling something for hours or days or weeks. And it's time to stop trying to do it in the flesh, in your own power, and to welcome Jesus in. Invite him into the boat, give it to him. He says, I am. I'm the God who's over the storm, but I wanna be with you in this storm and help you reach your destination. Fellowship, we love y'all. The prayer room's open through these doors to your right if you'd like to pray with someone. Communion elements are available there. We'll see you next week.